0: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorn with the New Books Network, the New Books in Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by John Lovett, the other John Lovett, um, to talk about the politics of herding cats when congressional leaders fail. And this is published by the University of Michigan Press in 2021. And it is a really, really fascinating study of thinking about congressional leadership, rank and file members the role of the media, um, information transfer, and all kinds of other good things, as well as three really fascinating case studies. Uh, But I'm going to let John tell us a bit about that. First, I'd like to welcome John Lovett to the New Books podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this project. Hi, John. Hi, Lily. Thank you again
1: for this opportunity. Um, So, yeah, as you mentioned, my name is John Lovett. Um, I... um, I am currently, uh, while well, I was most recently um, at Wake Forest University, um, I taught American politics. Um, and really, I mean, this project ended up being sort of the culmination of what started out as my dissertation. Now, my dissertation, it went through many different forms in many different places. And eventually, it kind of, I mean, it kind of started out as one idea. That idea kind of changed a bit. That idea kind of moved as these sort of things do from time to time. And eventually, we got to—I got to the point where um, I started thinking about this sort of from that sort of perspective and that sort of relationship between members of Congress and the media, and really just kind of running with that idea and thinking about how members can sort of expand out these issues and really try to sort of overcome leadership um, and particularly congressional leadership, obviously, and so really to some extent it's it was just kind of the culmination of me thinking through these ideas and this relationship between the media and congress and sort of how that sort of has a major effect on public policy in general
0: so. and it's a really interesting deep dive into like so many different aspects of that relationship and i i found it not only fascinating and compelling but beautifully written. Um, and so it's, you know, it's it's almost a page turner about Congress, which is a, a strange thing um, because I also sort of know some of these stories, um, but well done. And so I wanted to ask you, I mean, there's, you sort of talk about this um, at the, in the acknowledgements and then you go loop back to it also at the end of the book, the deep cut is Jack Kemp. Um, and, and Jack Kemp seems to also be sort of a, a, a bit of a player in aspects of this. Um, Can you talk a little bit about how you got from former Congressman Jack Kemp and also uh, Secretary of Health and Human Services?
1: I think so, yeah. I
0: think that's what he was. Um, To essentially this really complex and, and variegated sort of story about how Congress works.
1: So really, I mean, it started, this actually, the, the dissertation or the sort of second version of this dissertation or various things started with this idea of tax talk and this idea of members of, in particular, sort of influencing the tax process. And of course, Kemp ends up being a central actor here because Kemp basically spends the late 70s pushing anybody who will listen to him to say, um, hey, I... Uh, we should be we should be sort of cutting the income tax rate we should be cutting the income tax rate and he keeps pushing this and he keeps pushing this and mind you one of the things I realized was he had never spent a day on ways and means on the ways and means committee so he ne- even after uh, he succeeds in 81 he had ne- he never spends a day on ways and means he does get eventually out to budget but he never spends any time there so it's this idea of this individual member of Congress who theoretically has no power in this system like he never to my knowledge and I don't think he served a day in the majority during his entire time in um, in the House because eventually – yeah, because by the time they were in the majority, he was out at that point. And so really, I mean, he, he he's still able to overcome all this. So I started thinking about this. I'm like, OK, so what is really motivating this? And so I ended up talking about this in my dissertation. Unfortunately, it's one of the things that ended up – kind of, I kind of moved away from because there's just so much you can write about with, when it comes to taxes that it's like – it was eventually a story that I couldn't spend a lot of time telling relative to the stories I could tell in the book. And so so to some extent, Kemp is, he's kind of the background figure in all this because to some extent it's the sort of general motivation of where everything was moving and how this all worked. Um, And so really to some extent, he's kind of the ultimate case of where a member can do this. And to some extent you just need to have everything go to really sort of not even sort of just stop leaders, but be able to get your priorities through, for him, it ends up being to some extent that he's able to convince leaders, or more specifically, Ronald Reagan, of how important this is. And so really, Kemp ends up being, even though I don't, even though I only mentioned him sort of twice in the book, he's really kind of the overarching sort of ultimate success story in terms of not even going beyond the book sort of stopping leaders into actually getting what you want done.
0: And, and so, I mean, I didn't mean to bring up Kemp in, in that he, he sort of bookends the, the book, but um, in talking about how essentially backbenchers or non-leaders, rank-and-file members of Congress, particularly in the House, um, are able to either stop the progress of policy or able to get policy done This is sort of where you're looking at, like, how does that happen? Because we look at the speaker, we look at the majority leader, we look at the minority leader, and we look at, you know, over this period of time that you're focusing on, also the switching back and forth between the parties. Um, So in terms of how does that happen? This is your story. What did you find that was, you know, particularly interesting as you were looking at the story?
1: I think the big thing, and it's really sort of this question. I and it's something that I've thought about a bit because I I think that lead, that individual leaders can and cannot also sort of really do a lot in this process. Because to some extent, one of the questions was it, that I've that I've gotten sometimes about the books book has been, oh, well, this is because one leader was particularly better at this than others, and really, it's the institutional structures that have played a major role. Now, I'm not saying that some leaders were not better at this than others. I would say, for example, I mean, kind of thinking about sort of someone like a Nancy Pelosi is much better, was much better at keeping our caucus together, even in that sort of circumstance than, say, like a Paul Ryan. Um, And to some extent, of course, it's also different times as well. But I I think to some extent that we think about that that it really is sort of the power of the institutional structures in terms of sort of maybe not necessarily always compelling action, but at least stopping things from overwhelming the system. Um, one of the examples I have in the book comes up in the chapter on agricultural subsidies, where it's freedom to farm, which ends up being sort of the leader priority of the Republicans in the mid nineties, ends up initially failing in the house ag committee. And so Gingrich and the rest at Gingrich and, um, and uh, Pat Roberts end up saying, well, in particular, Gingrich ends up saying, okay, we're going to punish these members who, because it was Republicans who voted against it to protect their own interests. We're going to punish these members for doing that. Um, and so we'll event- eventually gets it through and they get through Freedom to Farm. And of course, what ends up happening there is that the priorities change because one of those four or so members who wanted um, to, to sort of stop Freedom to Farm ends up being the sort of the chair of agriculture the next time the the farm bill comes up and is able to sort of essentially keep the system as he wants it but it ends up being sort of a i think to some extent really a lot of the story here is about not just about sort of the individual members but also that the power of the structures that can either keep members from doing things or the ones that they're able to overcome
0: and there are a lot of different institutions it is the the sort of institutional structure of congress and, mm-hmm. and how committees work, and who's in charge, and so forth. But you talk about so many other dimensions. Um, before we get into the case studies, because I want to get into the case studies, um, can you talk about, when we're, we're sort of thinking about this, um, leadership, the issue evolutions themselves, particularly the role of the media, and how members can access the media, and now it's even more so with social media, but that's not the focus of your book. And and also this, this access to information, which I found really interesting to think about. Can you talk about those sort of threads in this whole story?
1: Yeah, because there are, there are really, I think, to some extent, a, a whole bunch of different actors who are playing this sort of role in the outside that then really ends up translating into the inside. So, of course, you have... You have your leaders and your and you have your media, you have your sort of leaders, the people who are going to be normally turned to, and then you have your other members. Now, media is looking for stories. So the media motivations and the congressional motivations are going to be different, but similar in the sense that they're trying to sort of, that media wants to write the story. Members of Congress want their story to be told, but media also is going to be looking for different threads, different ways to tell that larger story. And I think to some extent that's where you see these other members be able to come in. And the big difference is, okay, so if this is not getting a lot of coverage, you're not going to need to tell those other stories because it's not really exciting. This isn't what media. This isn't going to drive media coverage. This isn't going to drive sort of the increased coverage. Whereas if it's something where you're getting where you see more, or in some cases, increase in coverage, yeah, now you want those other perspectives. Now you want to know, okay, so we've got the leaders, but what about these other people? And to some extent, then. That is going to translate into activity on the inside because for these members, it's saying, okay, we can we can not only sort of talk to media, we can also use our activities in Congress to push things forward. We can say, okay, let's introduce these bills. Let's, let's introduce these amendments. Whatever it happens to be, under what circumstances, we have these ways of pushing this on our own terms. And I think to some extent, the, sto- the story here really is that media, and I think to some extent, social media is, and I, I kind of begin to talk about the end of the book, that social media is going to make this even stronger. Of course, as we know, it's probably not necessarily policy focused per se, but basically that sort of ability for leaders to control this process is dropping and it's dropping significant. If it hasn't already completely dropped out, it's dropping even further. And so for, for leaders, then it's, even more so than it was before that they are having these issues in terms of keeping control of the situation.
0: And, and again, the title of the book is the politics of herding cats. And so the, you know, the sort of role of the congressional leaders has always been one, you know, when I talk about it in class, obviously you compare it to a parliamentary system, particularly Westminster. And it is so far apart in terms of like what you have that you can use as a leader, um, and, and what your book is really talking about is that so much of that is fraying that it's really hard to see what capacity leaders do have in terms of managing their rank and file members to get them to do what they want. Um, and of course, you start out with the healthcare care debate um, among the Republicans trying to repeal the ACA. Um, and so you have the, the healthcare debate as one of the case studies, agriculture as another one, and immigration as kind of the, the in between, the Aristotelian medium. Um, and so, can you talk about why these three case studies kind of highlight what you're trying to get at in terms of congressional behavior?
1: Absolutely. So I, when I was thinking about the design for the book, and when I was thinking about what I wanted to show, I felt like there were three different ways I wanted to show this at work. I essentially wanted to show the situation where leaders win out, where leaders are going to have control of the system. And that's going to be your low um, your low coverage issues, something like an agricultural subsidies, where really, I mean, unless we're talking about sort of like, unless something, and in fact, it's, I mean, the, the largest sort of drive in the period i look at between 76 and 2016 has nothing to do well somewhat to do with congress a little bit but really to some extent nothing to do with congress and that it's the creation of farm aid um or the farm aid concert and so a lot so to some extent most of the coverage is not even happening if congress is able to kind of do its own thing on that with immigration i wanted something where we saw change and so if, so immigration you have that sort of 1980s coverage but not a lot of coverage um, a lot of this is allowed to happen sort of behind closed doors a lot of the conflict is actually happening between leaders and the only reason things don't happen in 82 or 84 is not because of sort of individual members pushing things but because leaders are doing most of the heavy lifting and so it's a leader do, it's a leader dominated discussion you get to the 2000s you get to sort of the 90s that begins to break down you get to the 20 the 2000s it breaks down even further. Um, And by 2010s, and of course, obviously, we can even take this into the 2020s. But by the time you get to the 2010s, basically, immigration is the sort of issue where you have people running presidential campaigns on it and trying to do certain things. I mean, the not sure I think one of the sort of um, things I mentioned in passing in the book, um, I think I mentioned it is that by the time you get to 2013, you get the Gang of Eight. And This is not, like, you go back to 86, it's negotiations between the two, the House and Senate subcommittee chairs on immigration. And maybe you've got judiciary in the background. And that's where most of the discussion is. By the time you get to 2013, you have Marco Rubio going on all four Sunday morning shows on the same morning to push the Gang of Eight deal and basically build his national profile. So the nature of the issue changed. And one of the things I wanted to make sure I was able to show was that as that nature changes, your ability to control the issue as leaders basically drops out. And then in that final piece with healthcare, it's a situation where we're always talking about it. It's that sort of central issue of um, American politics, and sort of that and that sort of question here of sort of okay, so what are when do leaders actually change this? And to some extent, you have to have every piece of every single circumstance come up exactly right if. The Democrats don't vote on if the Democrats in the Senate don't vote on what ends up being the ACA before the election of Scott Brown, you've got nothing. If 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 Jay Inslee doesn't have some extended discussion of his um, of his kitchen renovation to sort of rile up the House members to go back in and vote for the Senate bill, this doesn't happen. If you don't, to some extent, it's everything has to line up perfectly every little piece and that and what ends up happening and why 09 is so sort of significant there isn't all those pieces lined up 93 there wasn't really much of an attempt to line things up because clinton really doesn't do anything until the end of the year and by that point everybody's already decided hey this is the version i want to do um, and nobody does anything in 2017 you end up with a process where um, that the republic the house gets something through after massive amounts of sort of back and forth but the Senate doesn't want to take on the House's thing. And so by the time you get that midnight vote from John McCain, the whole purpose is kind of dropped out. And just as in sort of 09, unlike in 09, sort of 17, the election of Doug Jones probably puts a sort of final pin into all this. So it's like, so I think to some extent, it's, it's a story of very little coverage and sort of how leaders can control that change and sort of how leadership power breaks down and even under the most extreme circumstances you do see a win but it's kind of the exception to the rule in the case of healthcare
0: and and one of the sort of points that you pay a lot of attention to so the book is about congressional behavior but it's really about the the way that the media works in congress and with congress and possibly against congress but um and so it's a it is a story about congress and congressional behavior but it is also very much a story about the media. Can you explain about not only the media as a player in this, but your attention in the book to newspapers as opposed to other forms of the media?
1: Absolutely. So, um, I'd say to kind of answer the first question related to sort of um, sort of the role of the news media here. It really is about that. It's it's that sort of matching up of coverage with sort of things that people, the stories that they want to be able to tell, the stories that they want to focus on, the, um, these are the priorities. And to some extent, in my, the cases I end up choosing, a lot of it, you have sort of things that are being driven by events, you have things that are being driven by congressional activity, but then there's some things that just aren't being driven at all. And so to some extent, seeing what media wants to cover, what they don't, and then who gets kind of created out of that, to some extent, in terms of, the individuals who are able to sort of act on that because it ends up being a situation where it's, you do have some people who are able to use that to their advantage, especially on the congressional end. And so they're the easy ones to go back to the Tom Kratos, uh, Tom Krato immediately comes to mind as someone who built a presidential run and a gubernatorial run around how he was covered um, and sort of that coverage of him as a sort of stalwart against many of the efforts on immigration. And immigration reform. So I think to some extent it's for media, it's not only seeking out the stories, it's also seeking out the people. Now the newspaper choice, I think to some extent I wanted something where there would be at least some level of access that everyone would, including sort of the backbenchers, would have a level of access to, but also in particular, something where everyone would um theoretically want to and again, I mean there are some members that probably never want to get covered, but to some extent, having something where all members would have that sort of equal opportunity. And that's in particular why I chose the Washington Post, because the Post, it's the newspaper probably that's going to focus theoretically the most on Congress. It's the newspaper that's going to spend the most time probably on congressional activity. And so to some extent, it's not only just about letting people know at home, it's really also signaling to other members of Congress what's important. It's also signaling your priorities. It's signaling to stakeholders and policymakers and others who are making these decisions um, that what is important and that, hey, I am important. And so I think to some extent, because there'd be sort of limited space um, in particular with something like, say, um, television. Um, I'd been working on some other stuff with sort of television-related focus. um, And really the thing is, is that that it's, I think television in particular, it's just a little bit, hard, it's, it's just harder to get on because you have, whereas newspaper, I think you have more space, TV, it's going to be that much harder. And of course, social media, I think is the next stage in this discussion, because it is to some extent, the next place where we're going to see this sort of massive expansion.
0: And in terms of that, um, the role of the media, as you say, that the, the media is, and particularly the Washington Post or the newspaper, um, they're covering the policy, but they're also covering the individual. And and again, this goes back to some degree to the framers' understanding of like a House member might want to move to the Senate or a senator might want to run for president. Um, and, and Madison was very aware of that and, and wrote about that. How does all of that, the individual's ambition, counteracting ambition, um, come into play in terms of either pushing policy forward or also trying to stop
1: policy? I think that absolutely plays a major role. Um, I don't spend, I I unfortunately don't spend a lot of time trying to sort of tease out the different motivations just because it would just, that's a whole other project altogether. But it is I mean, looking at some of the members who end up part of, especially sort of the high uh, coverage topics, a lot of these members are people who are, who eventually do sort of move up and do run for president. I mean, you look at immigration and you've got, um, let's see, so especially in the 05 debate, 05 06 debate, you've got John McCain as a central actor there who'd already run for president, obviously, but was working with Ted Kennedy at that point. Um, you've got Tom Tancredo, you've got um, Duncan Hunter Sr um who is who also ends up running for president um uh sort of getting into this immigration discussion and you see it in other places too i mean the and members of congress end up trying to use especially these issues as ways to sort of define themselves and move themselves forward i mean go, just from sort of an anecdotal sense i remember just going through my data um i think it was alan cranston in the 80s talking about nuclear nuclear war trying to use that um Richard Lugar tries to use agricultural subsidies. Um, Neither one of these course, ends up going too far, but it is this sort of, I think there is to some extent, there's this connection between individuals trying to sort of use that notoriety, whether that using that notoriety to run for president or um, sort of, well, or sort of running for some level of higher office. Um, And I think to some extent there is, there's definitely a lot of that at work in this larger piece because- again, it is sort of that opportunity to sort of use this as your as your stepping stone to higher office.
0: One of the questions that I had for you as I was reading the, through the book is you do this time, the, the time period. So the beginning of the Carter administration, essentially through the end of the Trump administration. Um, can you explain to listeners why you look at that sort of period of time? What is it that sort of um, bookends it or confines it to that space? And what did you find in looking at that
1: 1977 to 2020? So there are two different sort of reasons I use that. One one is just sort of data limitations, in which is just basically that's yeah, it's, um, the most of the data started in 77, but it actually ends up working out very well in terms of being able to look at, at sort of these very different periods of, sort of control. So you have pretty much every possible way to look at control that happens during this period, whether it's sort of, um, I mean, you've got the, you've got that sort of start point of full democratic government and you get Republicans control the Senate and have the presidency and then you get the, then you get um, uh, sort of the full sort of divided government and then you, I mean, you keep going through this and it's, you've got divided government, you sometimes have unified government, you have, um, you have the Jim Jeffords switch um, changing the government midway through 2001. You have all these different ways to look at sort of governing structures. So it's not necessarily being driven by one group being perpetually in the majority or minority. It really is all of these different groups and all of these different um, sort of structures of leadership that are constantly changing. And so to some extent, your backbencher one day, your sort of minority backbencher one day might be in the majority. And so to some extent, does that change? Well, I don't end up getting a good sense to sort of look at all that, but it is, it is part of that larger story that maybe now that you're in the majority, that's going to change maybe how you seek things out and your long-term prospects. And so really with the, with the sort of the time period, I wanted to be able to look at all these different eras and really be able to say, okay, so you have the seventies. And then it takes us up to right around when we really begin to see the development of media moving away from um, sort of this traditional media focus, which, again, they're still going to these, but moving into the social media.
0: And and in, in terms of what you saw, is there a distinction um, between the way that Republicans operated um, and the way that Democrats operated?
1: Um, not that I can think of offhand. I mean, sometimes I think the overall motivations are there. I think there are definitely situations where you see some leaders definitely um, having different levels of control over their caucus to some extent. I mean, I would say, for example, like John Boehner knew when to get out, essentially. John Boehner knew at what point he was he was going to completely lose control of his caucus. And so he said, OK, I'm going to get out of this now. Whereas I think to some extent, I mean, that so those pieces, so there's... But at, at the end, I, I, I didn't really see any sort of – I think the major things, if, if we're thinking about changes, happen as a result of sort of the general changes we see in the parties during that period, more than sort of, more than, um, sort of um, anything like sort of differences between the two in, that, in, the, in terms of sort of how they – that sort of leadership caucus piece.
0: And what you saw and what we see during this period of time is that the parties themselves become more ideologically consistent internally. So Mm -hmm. the caucus in the Democratic caucus or the Republican caucus in the House or the Senate um, makes sense ideologically in a way that it hadn't before. But this is also when you see these periods where, as you note, John Boehner had a tough time holding his caucus together. Um and there's constantly comments about whether Nancy Pelosi can hold her caucus together. Um so is is the ideological consistency inside
1: the party also a problem? Um I mean to some extent it I think that it to some extent the I think it really depends on the circumstance. I think it really depends on whether sort. I mean to some extent just thinking about kind of the institutional structures you theoretically know when you're bringing something to the floor whether or not you've got the votes to do it. And you would and and I mean there are obviously exceptions to this. I mentioned the um the Good Lat 2 bill in um in the immigration chapter where it's like where they don't even get sort of the, they get close to, but not even half of the Republican votes on that. So to some extent, I think, you know, going in that you've got the votes versus don't have the votes, but at the same time, it is also, I, I mean, it is, it definitely, um, it definitely makes it that much harder for leaders because, you know, to some extent you have all this clamoring to do certain things, but if you know your caucus can't do it, If you know your caucus is not going to go forward with it, you push on it, and then all of a sudden, you don't have the votes, that just makes the situation look that much worse. And I think to some extent, it ends up being that separation between what leaders know versus what people want. Um, And so there's that sort of, so it gets into that sort of larger question, I think to some extent, that if you do also sort of increase that attention to an issue as well, that can backfire on um, leaders, because now all of a sudden, oh... The other members are going to talk about it and they disagree with the leaders. So
0: and, and again, the media is now here to amplify the the voices of the members of the caucus. And and it's not as if the Democratic Party or the Republican Party, when they were not ideologically consistent, had a lot of, you know, everybody rowing in the same direction sort of situation. So the sort of ideological consistency for me has been one of these points that I'm really paying attention to in terms of the evolution of how Congress works mm-hmm. um, because it doesn't necessarily mean it's working better or efficiently mm-hmm. per se, um, although I know it wasn't designed to work efficiently. Um, so in in terms of the role of the leaders in the rank and in relation to the rank and file, as you note, um, sometimes the leaders will kind of bring things forward when they have, they know they've got everything lined up and it's going to work. And other times they bring stuff forward, but they maybe don't give their rank and file full information. How does that work?
1: Well, I think that ends up being sort of this, and I think healthcare is the thing I think of immediately when thinking about sort of not giving the whole story because, I think to some extent it is that that you don't want those um, you don't want that coalition to break down, and so we think about healthcare. I mean, obviously, most of the Republicans wanted to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. The problem was, how do you do it? And so, by hiding the bill, uh, a lot of the story is keeping that, so that you know that we have limited amount of time to talk about it. We have limited time to deal with it. It's going to be either we're voting on this or not. And I think to some extent that does play a major role here because it is something where. For the leaders, they want to keep control of the situation, but and by keeping quiet about it and keeping quiet about what's actually in the bill, that does sort of have an effect because on the one hand, it's saying, oh, well, you go back later, you go back in terms of times of election and you voted against this bill and they might and your sort of primary constituency might turn around and say, hey, you voted against getting rid of the Affordable Care Act. What's up? And so I think to some extent, there's a larger role and story there in terms of the power, especially for leaders, to keep that information away, as well.
0: But you also note in the book throughout some of the the discussion of these case studies is that um, the the members have other access to information, um, and so while Paul Ryan or a you know a congressional leader can keep a bill under wraps, that it's still possible for members to get the information in some other way. Does that also impact the way that the leaders can operate?
1: Oh, absolutely. Because, I mean, really, I mean, you can try to keep these things down, but I think the 2017 healthcare situation really sort of illustrates that you had the House bill hidden. You had the Senate bill hidden until it kind of came through. And what ended up happening was you, I mean, you got eventually got a House bill through, but the Senate bill falls apart in, in dramatic fashion and to some extent it's because of that process now I don't know if that happens today well it yeah I mean I'm not sure sort of under different circumstances how that would work but it, it does and uh, it, it does have that ability to backfire and so while maybe you can keep it out of the limelight um, to some extent there's that question of whether the hiding makes it even more of an issue because I believe it was both both Steny Hoyer and Rand Paul were wandering the halls of the house looking for the house bill. And so, and that means that now you not only have coverage of it, you've got um, coverage of it that is not particularly flattering and coverage that is focused less on the actual particulars and more on the fact that they want to hide it, which doesn't look good for you. So.
0: Um, And when we talk about leaders, mostly you're talking about, as we've been having in this conversation, the the House and Senate leadership, minority and majority leadership. But part of your story is a bit about how the president does and doesn't influence and act in, in, in these particular cases and in general. Can you explain how the leaders interact with the president and the president interacts
1: also with the rank and file or doesn't? I I think this is also one of those cases where it depends from president to president as well, where you have sort of the sort of anecdotal stories and going back to taxes, which I don't really talk about, obviously, in the book, but going back to taxes and Ronald Reagan bringing members of both parties and talking to them about the tax tax bills and whatnot or sort of – I think there's a presidential style component to this that ends up playing a role in that larger – context. And I think different presidents are going to do this in different ways um, or did it in different ways. I mean, I think one of the things that that um, that worked for Obama that did not work for Clinton or Trump is that Obama, while there was that level of, of sort of letting Congress do its thing, did eventually to some extent make this his own and kind of came in and sort of the February 2010 discussions and whatnot and kind of ended up cementing and really was maybe not necessarily part of the legislative process, but was, but make, but kind of put himself out there as sort of pushing for it. Whereas Clinton kind of stays out of it for most of 93. And by that point, again, it's like, you've got sort of every member of Congress throwing in their version of how this should work. And Trump, for the most part, just waiting to see what's going to happen and what comes out, um, really just wanting the sort of larger, sort of whatever it is. Um, whereas Obama kind of um, put himself there, and I think to some extent, when he did that, that's really what kind of pushed things over the top. Because at that point, it's like, okay, this is we're going to own it for good or for ill, and um, Obama is going to own this for good or for ill. And so, and that's, and I think to some extent, that that role and that part of that process is what. And there are many different things that kind of pushed it in the end, but that definitely helped in a way that the way Clinton and Trump uh, approached it did not help them.
0: And, and so if we're talking about um, an understanding of how Congress works, which is, you know, a, a lot of what's what's going on here, um, can we forecast possibly the role that now that I mean, you talk about the, the social media towards the end of the book and you mentioned Representative Ocasio-Cortez, um, but, you know, we also have now Marjorie Taylor Greene and, um Crenshaw um, and you know sort of backbenchers really um, new reps um, who don't have high profile um, committee assignments or anything um, what is their capacity given your research um, to sort of jump the line um, and be able to define themselves and policy?
1: So I think it's really the question of whether they use that towards a policy end. And I think to some extent we're seeing an asymmetry to some extent within the two parties over this, whereas I think like uh, Representative Ocasio-Cortez and um, some of the other members who have been sort of pushing for issues on the Democratic side, um, Ayanna Pressley, Cory Bush, they've used these towards policy ends and kind of push for specific policy. Now, do they get what they want or not always? In fact, to some extent... It's always. I mean, you still have that large coalition, and you still have. I mean, one of the advantages I think that that Ocasio Cortez has that many others don't is that she doesn't necessarily need. Well, she doesn't depend on a lot of these sort of donor networks that mean that that she can take all this time to talk about all these other issues and focus heavily on policy in a way that maybe some Democratic backbenchers can't because they have to go make phone calls. Um, and I think to some extent that help that that allows her to and her staff to really kind of define these issues and kind of move things forward and and so i think that you have that sort of on the one side you have the democratic members really pushing on policy on the republican side there are definitely members who do this but there's definite i think a lot of what they end up doing is more things that congress isn't necessarily going to deal with or dealing with sort of social media as a way to Boost their profiles, um, whether that's a boost to their profiles to sort of run for higher office or get a job at Fox News or, um, I mean, in some cases to some extent, sort of sort of impress various people. I, I mean, it's it's kind of all over the place, but I think there's a definite asymmetry there. Now, this is, however, the way I think to some extent we're going to see members push for policy moving forward. Is that that you have this you have this avenue, you have this ability to sort of reach these people very easily. You don't need the media anymore to do that. And it's going to be unfiltered. Now, at the same time, you're still going to have the filter that if media is going to cover it, they're going to cover it on their own terms. But you at least have that unfiltered way to immediately reach individuals. And I think to some extent, that's the next step here. Now, institutionally, there's still those things that are going to kind of hold things up anyways. But at the same time, that pressure is just going to get that much greater. And I think to some extent we see this in terms of the Democrats at least beginning to move on things like the environment in ways that um, they hadn't probably recently. And we also see this in terms of the various kind of alliances and things that kind of come out of all this. I think I um, I think about Representative Ocasio-Cortez and Ed Markey as a perfect example of sort of these alliances where we're kind of focusing on these issues means that you have also that um, – House Senate uh, dynamic at work as well. So I think there's a lot and I think social media is where a lot of this is going. And I think my book is really kind of speaking to where we've been and giving an idea of where, how, where we've been really informs to some extent where we're going.
0: So it it is, I I mean, the story in your book is that there is the capacity of individual members, House and Senate to speak um, and to emphasize and to potentially move policy forward in some form um, and not just have a speaker of the house or the senate majority leader being in charge of everything with a very strong hold and so i think you're right that social media is is the next quagmire um, with regard to what happens next in this story so given that john can you tell me what you're working on now
1: um Well, let's see. I just actually – so I I just had a paper um, accepted at American Politics Research with um, uh, John Curiel, who is moving on to um, Ohio Northern University, and uh, Devin Christensen, uh, where we're looking at the role of Donald Trump's Twitter in terms of sort of of how that – sort of the types of messages that are getting out and sort of what messages get engagement, what messages get media coverage, that sort of stuff. So we're definite. so – um, we just had that come out uh, beyond that at the moment. I'm kind of just kind of in the middle of sort of transitioning through various things right now. I'm um, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I mean, I, I one of the things I mentioned in the acknowledgements is that of course I wrote this whole book as a non-tenure track professor. Um, and I'm moving away from that life at this point and trying to sort of figure out what's next, what that is. I'm not sure. I mean, um, I I like research. I've liked teaching. I've liked all these different things. I think to some extent it's, it's kind of figuring out what's next in that. Um, I mean, it's a lot of applications, but it's also, it's also sort of a interesting um, change in this larger process. So we'll see what happens. All right. Thank you, John
0: Lovett, for joining me today on the new books network to talk about the politics of herding cats when congressional leaders fail by University of Michigan, published by University of Michigan Press in 2021. I assume one can buy this from the University of Michigan Press website. Is there a brick and mortar store with an online presence to which you would like to give a shout out?
1: Um, I don't think they have my book, but um, there is a there is a really cool little um bookshop in uh, Winston Salem that's um um bookmarks, which um is which is attached to um, a little cafe footnotes, which is in the downtown area of Winston Salem. It's right next to the foothills, the foothills Brewer pub. Um, great little place. They've got a whole bunch of books and everything else and um, great selection. Uh, they don't have my book, but that's okay. Um, uh, but um, it, it is a nice little place and it's a cool place. And um, yeah, that's a good place.
0: Okay. And they may be able to order your book if somebody accesses them online.
1: Absolutely. That's in downtown Winston-Salem, 4th Street. um, uh, Yeah, right next to um, the Foothills Brew Pub.
0: Great. Thanks so much for joining me today, John.
1: No problem. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity.